Number 10, God's Mission, 4th Quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to start Lesson 10, Mission to the Unreached, and under God's Mission, My Mission. Dr. Daniel Duda is our moderator, and Nancy is going to offer our opening prayer. Dear Father in Heaven, thank you for this Sabbath, a very special time to remember you and all you've done so we can be free and be restored to the dignity of being made in your image. Please be with us today as we study the Bible with Dr. Duda in regards to your mission for the unreached. Help us to get more clarity and a larger perspective of eternal realities. And help us each to continue to grow and heal so we can naturally do better and better at sharing with others how wonderful you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. And thank you, Nancy. And blessings to all and welcome. So we are in lesson 10 on the quarter on mission. And the question we are asking, what do you do regarding the mission when you face a new situation? Paul in his epistles mentions that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he had all the privileges of growing up in Judaism. So obviously he went to the children's Sabbath school. He was steeped in the Bible and the Bible stories. And you can imagine he had some Bible heroes of his own. Now in chapter 17, we encounter him on a missionary journey and he comes to Athens and he is in a new situation. There is Athens, the capital of the Greek culture, Hellenism with its emphasis on body, Greek democracy and humanism, philosophy and education, but also pagans who live an immoral lifestyle, have their own culture, myths. Most people have one original name, if you are from two culture, and one Greek name. So Saulus Paulus, he has two names, sure enough. He's an educated man speaking Hebrew and Greek and maybe some other languages. And he enters Athens, famous for its analytical thinking, intellectual freedom. And so how is he going to do there? Now, if his hero was Joshua, who fought the Battle of Jericho, is he going to do what Joshua did in Jericho? Conquer Athens by walking around and shouting and praying that Acropolis falls down? If his hero was Gideon, remember, he got up at night, took his servant and cut down the idols. And the city woke up in the morning and they discovered that their sacred places are desolated and desecrated. And they are very surprised who did it. Now, maybe his hero was Elijah. And Elijah, remember when the pagans come to arrest him, the whole contingent of 50 soldiers, he prays and calls the fire from heaven and they are devoured. So the king sends another 50 and the same happens to them as to the first group. Now we rejoice. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Don't ask what the widows thought about that. But obviously God has blessed in the past both Joshua and Gideon and Elijah, and they have been victorious. We don't know who was his hero from childhood, but what is he going to do? He is facing, just like Christianity, a new historical situation, something that Christianity hasn't faced before. How is he going to approach it? How would his heroes respond? Or how would Saul before Damascus respond when even the difference between Judaism and Christianity, who at that point are considered just the two groups within Judaism, as Christianity is a sect within Judaism, for him is unacceptable. For him is a death and life difference that cannot be tolerated. How is he going to respond? So let's pick up the story in Acts 17, verses 16 to 18. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul is in Athens, and sure enough, as a God-fearing Jew, he's deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, he's not facing an easy situation. 
you can see that the philosophers say to him, what does this pretentious babbler trying to say? So they don't respect him very much. They don't look up to him. They consider him a babbler. There's nothing to say. How is he going to deal with that situation? And of course, he's upset because he sees all these idols, which for him is an abomination. Verse 19. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? And 20, 21. It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Okay, so they bring him to Aeropagus. Now, Aeropagus was a hill named after god Ares, who was the cruel god of war, and it was a meeting place for the town council, a tribunal that was overseeing the morals and the laws that the society should follow. In Paul's day, they could not pass the death penalty. So Paul is not in a threat of a death in a sense that he's going to be punished for what he says. But we will read later what Ellen White said in our material. You have it there at the last page. Yet they still have significant authority and respect. Now, how is he going to respond to that situation? May we know what is this new teaching that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we'd like to know what it means. And then comes verse 22. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul stood up in front of Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely spiritual you are in every way. Now compare verse 16 and verse 22. Paul was walking, waiting for the two colleagues to catch up with him through Athens, and he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And when he has this opportunity, Paul stood up in front of the Areopagus and said, You know, Athenians, there is something about you that I like. Rita. Well, I hadn't noticed before that when Paul was waiting, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Would he not have expected that? And I wondered if perhaps he was distressed because he was wondering, how am I going to find a way to get through to these people? And so obviously wandering around and looking at their idols and things, it came upon him a way in which he could get through to them. Yeah, thank you. Maybe he was expecting it, but when he saw the reality, he was overwhelmed with it. So it was worse than what he expected. But yes, the sense that, okay, what am I going to do with this? This is more serious than I thought. Lou? I love this story because... Paul found a common thread there that he could build on. And it doesn't mean just because they hadn't heard that their hearts weren't available to the Holy Spirit and God. And it just seems to me, it's just one of my favorite stories because he picked right up on something that he could build on about God. And I think that was a beautiful lesson for all of us. These people were already aware that maybe there was an unknown God they didn't know about, which means maybe they were open and ready to hear about God. Yes, and Luke comments on that, as we read in verse 22, 21, where he says they are open to new things, even to the extent that they do nothing else than just <laughs> always chasing something new. Livius? I like that it shows how well he did his research. He carefully observed, the translation said, the objects of their worship and found something. He found a way in. And I love how it's a perfect example of how he met them where they were which is what God kind of does with us. Yes, the research is amazing, and we'll touch on that later when we see how he delivers the message. Now, imagine that you want to compliment your audience. What would you say? Would he say, you look very good? That's rather superficial. Would he say, your democracy is excellent? Remember, they are the cradle of democracy. The whole world looks to them. I like your emphasis on education. You are certainly educated. Remember in the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, the father of the bride says to his American soon-to-be son-in-law, when you have been chasing buffaloes, we Greeks already had philosophers. 
So very proud of the thinkers that they had. But he doesn't go for a superficial compliment. He goes for something that he really means, and it's even connected with religion. And here's an important point. Verse 16 says, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. And verse 22, he starts by saying, man of Athens, I see that in worshiping gods, you are very zealous. Now, probably a typical Jew who was very upset about the idols would say, what wretched pagans you are. Your gods are disgusting and shameful. And you want to judge me and my teaching? And you call me a babbler? Or he could speak like Stephen. Remember in chapter 7, Stephen reminds his listeners that they persecuted all the prophets and that he does not expect anything better from them either. Or if you look at verse 21 and Luke's evaluation, he could have said, you just want to hear something new. You always want to be entertained so that you don't have to do anything serious. I leave it to you and your philosophers, but I don't have time for this. I am a man on a mission. Yet, Paul is able to say, you know, guys, there is something I like about you. I really appreciate how seriously you take your religion. Rita? I think he probably chose that because obviously all the idols and temples about in Athens would demonstrate that that was something very important to them. And I suspect that the Greeks wanted to be known around the world as very God-fearing, if you like, with the small g people. And Paul understood that this would be the best compliment to them. It was perhaps the thing that they were known for or wanted to be known for. Yes, thank you. Sherry? I'm impressed that a man who was so well-educated and knew that he knew a lot was able to respond the way he did. I think so often we get in our own way because it offends us, our pride is hurt, or something of that nature. It makes it about us. But he was able to stand above all of that and quietly do his research, not be offended, and yet be so zealous for reaching them for God in a healthy way that he was putting himself completely out of the picture and God was able to use him in a powerful way. I'm really impressed. And I think sometimes we have a hard time being in that place where God can use us powerfully because we get in our own way and we don't mean to, but it's so easy to. Yeah, very much so. Exactly. So he realizes this is not about me. This is not about my emotional reaction. And as we mentioned in the previous lesson, God is able to use Daniel to reach out to Nebuchadnezzar because Daniel is able to process the injustices and the bad situations that happened to him, the events, which were not fair at all, in a positive and constructive way. And notice if you look at number four, Paul also is able to turn his frustration with the city of idols into a compliment and see something positive about what people are doing and find something positive about them. That requires a mature person. The fact that he can be constructive in spite of the fact that he's emotionally distraught. Michael Bell? Yeah, Athens was a site of Greek intelligence, philosophy. This is the land that produced Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. And coming into that kind of a circumstance, that city, to insult these people who are quite intelligent, wouldn't work. That kind of argument, just coming in insulting people, generally never works. And so he took a different tactic, which was to compliment them. And that got their attention. And it's a lesson not only for the Greeks that were in Athens at that time, but it's a lesson for us. Yeah. So Paul can take his frustration and say, you know, guys, there is something I like about you. I certainly appreciate how seriously you take your religion. Now, Paul, where did you learn this? He didn't learn this in this children's Sabbath school. Elijah, when he looked at Baal's prophets at Mount Carmel, and he saw how they shouted, how they danced, how they slashed themselves, he taunted them. He says, shout louder. Maybe your God is in deep thought. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe Baal went to a toilet. Now, he is taunting, offending them. But Paul says, you know, guys, there is something I like about you. You take your religion really seriously. And this teaches us, if we just repeat what somebody else did, even if it was a man or a woman of God, we are not doing necessarily God's work. The fact that God blessed something, one method, 
and I am going to do the same, surely he will bless me as well. Not necessarily. Sometimes God blesses things he doesn't agree with. Ask David. He could tell you he was quite upset when Nathan had to come back and tell him, actually, you are not going to build the temple. What do you mean I am not going to build the temple? Yeah, you are a man who shed too much blood. Oh, but before every time I went into the battle, I asked the Lord, when I come back, will this head be still on its neck? Are you going to be with me? Are you going to give the enemies into my hands? Did not consult God when he needed to add another wife to his harem. But when it was about his head, he was always careful to consult God to make sure that he will be alive that night. Sometimes faithfulness to God means to come up with something new, just like with Paul here. Thoughtless repetition of a form is not necessarily a proof of faithfulness to God. And notice he did not only remain on the level of compliment. He said, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with inscription to an unknown God. Now, remember, Gideon chose 10 men from among his servants and did what the Lord asked him to do. Got up early morning and destroyed the altar and the grove. And in the morning when the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished. And Asherah pole beside it was cut down. And then he used the wood for a burnt offering and the new altar which he built with it, according to Judges 6.28. And Paul says, I walked around, looked carefully at your objects of worship. I studied you, I researched you, and I even found an altar to an unknown God. Now, Paul, what are you doing? Don't you know from Ezekiel 33.25 that you should not do any compromise with evil? You are supposed to preach straight testimony. But Paul knows that in order to connect with people, you need to have this sense that God is delighting in us. And we talked about it in the previous lessons, the unconditional acceptance. Remember how God accepts Naaman in spite of the fact that he's not there yet, that his operating system is hopelessly obsolete and pagan, how he accepts Nebuchadnezzar? Then you need, besides the unconditional acceptance, you need diligent search for something good, and then you need a gentle exposure to something that is painful. And so Paul knows what he's doing. He's not going to compromise. When the proper time comes, he will tell them about Jesus, about the need for repentance, about the resurrection. All the points will be there that are important for the Christian message. So he's not toning down the message. He's not diluting the message. But he does it in a way, as Graham would say, if you want to win, you cannot alienate people. He knows that first he needs to build a bridge of mutual trust with his listeners to open the doors. And so he says, I actually like how zealous you are in your religion. So tell me, when was the last time you said to a Catholic or Episcopalian, I like how seriously you take your religion? Could you say to someone from the New Age movement, I admire how much you desire true spirituality? Or could you say to a philosophically minded person, I have a high esteem for your diligent search for truth? Could you say to a Jehovah's Witness, I appreciate that the sanctity of God's name is of utter importance to you. And could you say to a last generation, firm foundation person, I like how seriously you take your quest for holiness. Or to a Muslim, I like how seriously you take your prayer life. Iris. I actually said something like that to Michael <laughs> in the chat, but I don't think he saw it. I really admire Michael's open mindset to study for years with Seventh-day Adventist people and how he enriches our reflections here. I think this is remarkable. And I think his example raises for me the question, am I just staying in my familiar circle of people who think alike or do I go outside? And I show that same graciousness, that same level of openness. I think it's important to suspend judgment. I think that is key. And in essence, what Paul teaches us here is the willingness to see where has God been before I ever arrived on the scene? Where are the spiritual longings in these people where the Holy Spirit has been working before me? That is basically where I am asked to follow and to testify to that quest that has been revealed. Yes, and there on page two, you have the longest Greek word in the New Testament from Graham. Thank you, Terry and David. So to use one of the longer words from German, Anknipfungspunkt, 
the point of contact. How do I continue what the Holy Spirit is already doing in the lives of these people? This is not about me. This is about them. And the Holy Spirit is at work in their lives. And my job is to take that work, continue with that work, take it forward. Yes. And notice, according to number four, it not only provides a bridge, but the altar to the unknown God will allow Paul to speak about his God so naturally already in his third sentence. Most probably some of us would say, I see that in spite of your zealous worship of all possible gods, you know nothing about the true God. Now, Paul is going to say the same thing, but my, what a form. You even want to worship a God that you do not know. You have a desire to search for truth, to know, and I am aware of that. And I like it about you. I know about your search and even about your altar. I want to bring you what you are searching for. I have an answer for your search. I have something to offer you. Notice, Paul doesn't start with himself. Oh, I am so full of this. I have to share it. I have to give it to you. He starts with them, but in a way that you have to admire. And he prepared them for what he's going to say. As Livius said, he did research. He knows something about them. He started in a positive way. You cannot win and antagonize at the same time. He doesn't start with himself. I must, I want, I should. People whose only spiritual gift is the gift of straight testimony could not handle a situation like this. He starts from his listeners. And because he knows their needs, he can bless them. Henry? Yes, we probably need to start from a position of humility, right? Not with the arrogance that I have here to teach you something, but we are here to learn together. And I admire this from you. And maybe we can have a conversation so we can both learn together. Because who can be so arrogant as to repeat this story from the people of Israel in the past that we sometimes proclaim to be the followers, right? The remnant from them and repeating exactly the same mistake, thinking that we got it. And now let us teach you how to get there. And we have not even getting close. That's right. So we are coming to you with truth. No, we are humbly searching. We are all on the same journey. So you don't come from the high moral ground to them. Iris? I would say from experiences where God allowed or created a space for a respectful spiritual dialogue, it's never only a one-way street. When I speak with my Muslim friend about God, I feel like I too am blessed by what she has to share. And I think the most profound experiences have been I have sometimes mentioned this friend in times of discouragement. She is so committed to regular prayer because prayer is central in the Muslim faith, right? And I remember distinctly when my friend's son was dying, I said to her one day, you know, sometimes I'm so sick and tired of even praying to God because I feel like I'm saying the same thing and it's going in the opposite direction and I'm tired. And she said, oh, Iris, just don't ever give up on prayer. And in that moment, I felt so understood. I felt there was common ground between us because ultimately we are praying to the creator God, both of us. And for her to encourage me in my faith, walking through darkness with God, this was very powerful. So I wanted to just emphasize this witnessing thing is not a one-way street. And as I am testifying to an experience that God has given me, I'm also intensely listening to where has God led in the other person's life. And I'm blessed by that testimony. Sure. sure. Yeah. Thank you. Let's read verse 24 to 28. What's the next segment of Paul's speech? The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. 
From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. And verse 29. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. Mm -hmm. So the God who made the world and everything in it, he's the Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't live in shrines made by human hands. That's our memory text. Notice he speaks about creation, God the creator. He speaks about worship, but what a way to present those things. So here's the question, number five. How many times does Paul quote the Bible in his speech? And to be a little bit anachronistic, and how many times does he quote Ellen White? Now, of course, you understand what I mean. He cannot quote Ellen White. But how many times does he quote the Bible? Rita? He doesn't. He doesn't. Zero. And why? Because Hebrew scriptures are no authority for Greeks. No quotation from Moses, prophets, or Hebrew terms is going to impress the Greeks. Leaving aside the prejudice that Greeks have against the Jews, Bible for them is unknown and irrelevant piece of literature or Hebrew writing. So what does he quote? Twice he quotes Greek poets, the authorities which are authorities for them. And that's why if Ellen White is a prophet, prodomosua, for within the house, for the remnant church, why would you quote her to non-Adventists? She's not a prophet for the non-Adventists. Paul doesn't quote the scripture to the Greeks, because for them, the scripture has no authority. Now, he has all the aspects of the biblical theology there. He speaks about God the creator. He speaks to philosophers who think in abstract terms. He doesn't speak to rabbis. He doesn't speak to Christians, but the top Greek philosophers and thinkers who understand. And so he says, if God is higher than us, then he doesn't need us to serve him because that would make him dependent on us. So instead of saying, you know, the sacrifices to appease gods are useless, worshiping idols is primitive, ridiculous, and disgusting. Paul says, but you are educated Athenians. You are thinkers. You are searching for higher truth. You will agree with me that if there is one God who created all this, even us, humanity, then he cannot be dependent on us. In verse 29, he says, we should not be thinking that he needs us. If God is a higher being, then he doesn't need anything from us. You can figure it yourself. Your logic is going to teach you that. We philosophers, we know that. Now, if you have ever been to Athens, I suggest you look at Acropolis. Greece is within the Trans-European Division. Athens, I have been there many times. I go for the meetings or different events there. Every time I go to Aeropagus, look at Acropolis and remember Paul. He says, you know, common people think that gods live in the temple. But we philosophers, we have figured that out. If God is God, he cannot live in a chicken coop that we build for him. The logic teaches you that. Imagine you see the splendor of Acropolis there and everything. And Paul says, we philosophers, we have figured this out, didn't we? We understand that if you need to feed your God and take care of your God, then he's not higher than you. He's just one of you. Paul starts with the thinking of his listeners and he speaks in categories that they can understand, that they use themselves. And in few sentences, without attacking anything or anybody, he just refuted the essence of idol worship and bringing sacrifices to God. I mean, there goes the appeasement atonement in a brilliant and acceptable way. You surely understand this. God cannot be a statue made out of gold. It would be ridiculous to think that. And all philosophers in the audience say, that's right, that's right, high five. Good marks. Yep, that's what we think. And then he says, yet he's not far from each one of us. And that is important. This is not Aristotle's unmovable mover, a deity in splendid isolation. This is not the original law of Stoics in his audience. This is a personal God who is close to each one of us. And why did he create us? What does he say? What is the purpose of life when he speaks to philosophers? God did this so that man would seek him. What is the most important in life, if you are a philosopher? The search for truth. 
What do the Greeks ask? What's the essence? What's the ultimate reality? And all philosophers say, yep, that's right. He created us to search for him. What can be more important for a philosopher than to search for ultimate truth? And what is more important than spiritually seeking, even for us today? So he speaks the language of his listeners. He uses their terms. He says nothing about creation, original sin, or theological terms, but he shows that he understands the essence of their thinking, of their philosophy, and he's using their vocabulary. And as we said in the material, today's world doesn't think in terms of sin, repentance, justification, glorification, salvation. People don't even use those terms. And Paul didn't use them either. Can you deliver the message speaking about inner harmony, about peace and brightness, cleansing of the soul? Maybe the world would pay attention. People would listen if we speak on terms of paper. And so Paul cannot use the methods of Gideon or Elijah because time have changed. People have changed. The old approach would just not work. God has moved on. When the disciples say in Luke 9, 51, should we call the fire from heaven? Jesus says, you don't understand whose spirit you are. God has moved on and you need to move with him. Unless you are trying to understand people and their thinking or the complex world in which we live today, there's no way of finishing the work. Evangelism starts with listening. And if you don't understand people you are trying to reach, you don't know how to reach them. And now comes the important part. As some of your own poets have said, what? Paul is going to use two quotations, and you know where they are from? When he says, he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets said, we are his offspring. That's Epimenides, who lived 600 years before Christ. And in his poem, Cretica, he puts on the lips of Minos, the son of Zeus, in honor of his father. So the son of Zeus is speaking about the top god. They fashioned a tomb for thee, O holy and high one. The creatures, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. By the way, he will quote that one in Titus. But thou art not dead, thou livest and abidest forever. For in thee we live and move and have our being. That's where he got it. Now, Paul, where did you learn this in the children's Sabbath school? Where did you hear about Epimenides? And then, as one of your poets said, we are his offspring. Now, this is from 3rd century before Christ. And it was Aratus from Silica. Now, we can understand where he might have learned this, because Cilicia was the place of birth for Paul. And Aratus wrote the didactic poem, Phenomena. And there is a hymn to Zeus. And it says, let us all start from God. Let us, we mortals, never leave him without a name. The fullness of God is in streets, in every human market. Both sea and heavens are full of him. It is with God that every one of us in every way has to do, for we are his offspring. Now, when the poem says, let us start from God, you say, beautiful. Actually, we have a problem. Because when we say, let us start from God, it's not a precise quotation. Because in Greek, he says, let us start from Zeus. So when he says, for in him, we are his offspring, the text is speaking about Zeus. So Paul is going to take an abstract term for the highest God, which in the mind of his listeners is connected with Zeus of Olympus, the highest God of Greek pantheon. And he says, and this is the God that I am preaching to you, the highest God, Zeus, about whom your own poets have written. Now, how much courage would require that? Where did he learn that? To take a pagan poem as a testimony about God, the only true God. Can you imagine taking a song by Beatles and applying it to Jesus? But Paul takes a poem about Zeus and uses it as a quote from the book of Psalms. Yes, he's proclaiming the highest God to Greeks in a way that appealed to their knowledge, to their imagination, and to their culture. Bob? He was educated in a place, Anatolia, is that right? Tarsus, isn't that outside Judea? So was he educated by Gamaliel and others where he knew a certain amount of Greek philosophy? Part of his training? Yes. So he had a little bit of a background, perhaps. And you can see how God can use everything you learn for a good purpose. Lou? It just seems to me that the common thread is the Holy Spirit. He's been preparing hearts to be open 
And he's working through Paul, the Holy Spirit, to touch their hearts and answer their questions of the unknown God. And it's just exciting to me to see how through the entire Bible, how God has led and the Holy Spirit is working. And John Pauline always talks about that the Holy Spirit is working in every religion and every human and around the universe. And it's happening and it's thrilling to see it happening. It happened then and it's happening even more now. And it's an exciting time to be alive. Excellent. Although you know that there are many Adventists who have a big problem with John Pauline precisely because that's what he says. And here you have a proof that where John Pauline learned that from reading Act 17. And some people never read Act 17. And that's why they don't know about the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, the work of the Holy Spirit is always there. He's universal. He's not our private property. The problem is that some people are open to be used by him, and some people are not so open. And that's what creates the inner tension, that when we are on our own mission, then we are not open to be and participate in the mission of God, that God and the Holy Spirit are doing, and how they are reaching out to people. Karen put in the chat, the Holy Spirit can work in very creative ways. Once I met a Christian who was converted by hearing the words of a pop song written and sung by a non-Christian artist. So you don't need the hymn now for the Holy Spirit to work. Sherry? There have been some people who think, okay, this is a good way to work so we can get accomplished what we want to accomplish. And they take it as a personal project. So I have become the attempts by someone to be a personal project using all of these ways, trying to think of what might be interesting to me, all of these things that we're talking about, where we're aware so that we can be as winsome and careful as possible. But if it's done from someone who doesn't have the same intent, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit with them, but is trying to use it to manipulate or control you for their own ends or to feel important, then it can be very damaging. So I think, again, that whole process of being open to God, being humble, letting Him guide rather than it being our project to see how much we can control someone is very important. Sure, sure. But any human activity, whether someone is trying to sell you boiler insurance or cryptocurrency or whatever to control and manipulate you, it's going to damage people and create a sense of being taken for a ride. You don't need religion for that, and people do it in all spheres of life. Yes, yeah. And the important thing about the biblical model is that God doesn't do it, even with the best intention, you know, offering you eternity in the paradise. He's not going to use unscrupulous methods to offer you that. So that's very important. Thank you, Sherry. All right. Now, after Paul appealed to philosophers, say, you know why God created us? So that we search for him. What is the most important thing in life for philosophers? The search for truth. And what is the cardinal sin for philosophers? Being ignorant, not to know. So let's go to the punchline. Verse 30, after Paul explained why idol worship is not only disgusting and primitive, but doesn't get us where we want to be, because if God is really God, he cannot be a golden statue and he cannot be dependent on us and the food we provide for him or the house that we built for him. We philosophers understand them. Some other people haven't thought about it much, so they are happy with that form of religion. But you and I understand this and that some people are ignorant. What is Paul going to say next, Terry, from verse 30? While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. So notice, now he starts speaking about the judgment, about repentance. God has overlooked the times of ignorance. And now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And he even set a day when he will judge the whole world with the justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of that by raising him from dead. Can you see, in one sentence, he can sum up the whole gospel. He can speak about responsibility, about judgment. But he speaks about it in such a simple and acceptable manner. What is the gospel all about? It's about God. It's about Jesus. But how does Paul speak about Jesus? 
Did he say to them, you know, there was this Hebrew rabbi, his name is Jehoshua. No, he's a man appointed by God who was resurrected from dead. That's who Jesus is. Doesn't even mention his name. Paul, didn't you know that there is no other name given to people by which people can be saved? Yeah, but for that, you don't need the anglicized version. So if you don't pronounce Jesus, then you are not going to be saved. He just presents the essence of what Jesus does. He speaks about the gospel of forgiveness as a solution to the problem of sin. But the sin is ignorance, and the solution is that God overlooked that. It's done. It's not based on what you do. All you need is just to accept it. And so Paul will follow the spirit of his sermon into the introduction of the problem, into introduction how God solved the problem. Now, he cannot talk like this to rabbis in Jerusalem. What is the sin that people need to repent of? God overlooked such ignorance. Obviously, he speaks to philosophers. And you know what? Not all Greek philosophers would agree that immorality is a serious problem, that the problem is a sin, is immorality. Stoics would agree, but Epicureans, certainly not. You use every opportunity you have to provide pleasure. But ignorance, that's sin to everybody. It's shameful. It's disgraceful. All philosophers agree that search for truth is the most important, and ignorance is a sin. It's a serious offense. And so he can couch the call to repentance in a way that is non-offensive to these people. What worked in Athens would not work in Jerusalem, and what worked in Jerusalem would not work in Athens. So what's the lesson? Let's go to Michael. Well, as you said many times before, Daniel, meet people where they are. You have yes, to do that or you're not going to get anywhere. Yes, thank you. Rita? Know your audience. Otherwise, yes. you're not going to get through to them. Where have they come from? What do they want? What do they need? How much do they already know? Know your audience. And for that, you need to mingle. You need to study. You need to understand them. And if you don't know your audience, the fact that something is truth for you is not necessarily going to be the truth for them. And if you don't know your audience, you are not going to reach them. Livius, thank you, Rita. Well, to become all things to all people, so that in yep. the end, you might save some. And that's the important. So Paul used this amazing approach. No wonder Ellen White is so proud of him when she describes it. No wonder you understand what's going on and you say, wow, Paul, amazing. I'm just spellbound. Where did you learn this in the Old Testament? How can someone be on this level reading the Old Testament? Just like Jesus reads the prophets and he gets the essence of Judaism, of true worship and God's kingdom. It's amazing. And now you think, okay, so if you use the right approach, you are going to reach everybody. You are going to have a positive evangelistic reaping campaign, right? Is he going to win everybody? Verse 32, and when they heard of the resurrection of dead, that a good soul would be put back into the body, some scoffed, but others said, we will find another day to listen to this. And when people don't want to listen, Paul left them. But some of them joined, including the leader of Areopagus, Dionysus, a woman. Make sure you mention a woman by Luke. So he was successful in a way, but he didn't reach everybody. In a free universe, you cannot reach everybody. Dan? This is really an interesting example of a bias that I know that I'm guilty of. Sometimes when I'm confronted with a really difficult decision, when it is known that there's a bias for some people who will defer that decision. And so the decision, it, it seems like it's a good decision, but it's really a bad decision because what you really have put off something that you could have done today and that you probably will never really address again in the future. And so I think we can deceive ourselves with that type of thinking, but it is a fairly common, it's a very well-known bias. It's a very well-known quirk that some of us suffer from. Okay, thank you. Terence? I'm looking at verse 29. I know we have stepped past that already. But in your explanation of Paul's approach, you did say that he's primarily referring to Zeus. However, I'm trying to see the how it is that in our fundamental beliefs present, that verse 29, which refers to Godhead, we use it in our explanation of the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm trying to tie how we would have been able to deduce a modern thinking when in fact Paul was not referring to the Trinity per se? Good question. So we take the part that we should not think that deity is a gold or silver or stone or image, but for that you need to read the whole Bible to discover in what form the deity exists. 
And from the Hebrew scriptures, we know that he exists as the Father, and we know from the New Testament that he exists as the Son, and we know that he exists as the Holy Spirit. Is the Trinity in Acts 17, 29? Of course not. The word Trinity doesn't even occur in the Bible. So it's not proof texting, it's reading the intention that we do not create God in our own image, that we learn something about how God himself revealed it to us. Okay, Lou? And with your comment that the message didn't reach everybody, not everybody accepted it. And it made me think about when Jesus was here on earth, how many people really accepted and how many, many, many more rejected him and his message. But he loved anyway. He never reacted from all of their negativity and evilness and putting him on the cross, all of that. He loved Anyway, he never got his feelings hurt. Sometimes when we're rejected, we get our feelings hurt. Jesus never did. And I think that's a beautiful example that not all ground is fertile, at least right now. And that doesn't mean that if the seeds are planted, that someday they might yield a harvest. So we just have to follow Jesus's way and just love, just continually love everybody in a very inclusive way and let the Holy Spirit work as he choose, as he will. And our job is to collaborate with him and to be open yeah. what he wants to teach us and how he wants to use us. Yes. And the more narrow-minded and stubborn we are, the less he can do for us and through us. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Lou. If you go to the last page, the last three quotes from the Acts of Apostles, the book of Acts of Apostles from Ellen White, she says, this is how proud she is of Paul. She says, the wisest of his hearers were astonished as they listened to his reasoning. He showed himself familiar with their works of art, their literature, and their religion. If you want to reach people or different types of people, people come to the seminary and say, I'm here to preach the gospel. And we say, okay, you need to learn Greek. Oh, I don't need that. I just want to preach the gospel. Now, Paul needs to know the works of art, of literature, of religion. Listen to this. People were carried away with admiration for Paul's earnest and logical presentation of the attributes of the true God, of his creative power and existence of his overruling providence. They liked what they heard. Some agreed and some didn't, but you will never win everybody. Even the father did not win all of the angels as Henry put it in the chat. Now, here is something important, Acts of Epistles, page 241. Paul's words contain a treasure of knowledge for the church. And this is what she says. He was in a position where he might easily have said that which would have irritated his proud listeners and brought himself into difficulty. If he started insulting them and their gods and their idols and say how disgusting they are and how humiliating is this worship, which, by the way, the philosophers agreed with him on that one. Had his oration been a direct attack upon their gods and the great man of the city, he would have been in danger of meeting the fate of Socrates. Remember what happened to Socrates? In a dignified way, he needs to drink poison because he happened to offend the taste of his listeners. If Paul misstepped, and said something inappropriate and attacked them, if he used a crude form of evangelism, he would have destroyed himself, did not help his audience, and did not bring glory to God. But notice what she says, but with a tact born of divine love, he carefully drew their minds away from heathen deities by revealing to them the true God who was to them unknown. And those who were searching and wanted to know, they learned and followed the path, the others will do in due time. Remember the previous lesson, mission to the powerful. God works in his own timetable. He does not expect to have the harvest in January if you are on the North Hemisphere or in July if you are in the Southern Hemisphere. There is time to sow, there is time to reap, and God can work with the time because he's not in a hurry. All right, time to pull it together. If you had a chance to speak in Madison Square Garden, in Royal Albert Hall, or in Sydney Opera, if you had 30 minutes in the full house, what would you say? Now, I don't mean that everybody needs to work on the level of Apostle Paul and to attract people with unfulfilled needs, with their own life philosophy, but each one of us needs to find a way how to process our own experience 
Remember, he was upset about the idols, yet he can turn it into a positive, constructive way of addressing people that he can address. Now, God does not everybody to speak on Aeropagus to philosophers, but God expects us that the things that we encounter, whether they are in our own life, as we talked about Daniel, or in our surroundings, as we talk about Paul in Athens, that we process them in a positive and constructive way. You would not believe how many times I have heard people complaining, but we live in this secular society. I say, thank you, Jesus. Would you rather live in Middle Ages? In the secular society, at least you can go your own way. Nobody tells you that you are off because everybody has their own truth. You wouldn't want to live in 13th, 14th century, in the time of Inquisition, with your variant views. You are not part of majority. So you should be thankful for the secularism. Not complain that, oh, where are the good old days when whatever the church said, everybody agreed with without thinking. You wouldn't want that. Done. I'm answering your question. What would I do if I had a chance to speak in Madison Square Garden? I just would like to refer to what my wife would do, who does a lot more public speaking than I do. And what she does is she spends a great deal of time about thinking what she's going to say in the first two minutes, because she's well aware that the audience is going to either be with you for the rest of the evening or not be with you. And it seems to me that Paul really thought about what he was going to do. And I think that his first couple of sentences was really one of the most clever, thoughtful things that I've ever heard of getting that audience on his side, at least to begin with. And it seems to me that so often when we address other people, we're a little careless about how we start those conversations and haven't really thought about how do we get them into a mode in which they're receptive to whatever we're going to say. Anyway, that's something I learned from Melissa. Good, thank you. Notice he does not erect the straw man in order to destroy and show how good I am. He doesn't compare the best of Judaism with the worst of Greek philosophy. How often in our evangelism we compare our best to somebody's worst. Now, as you can see, Paul did not preach an impromptu sermon on Aeropagus. His sermon is well thought through, is carefully prepared, he uses the wide knowledge, the things that he has learned, whether in children's Sabbath school or in the other training that he had, God can use all of that one day. Luther said it so well, the Holy Spirit prefers to use full heads to empty heads. You remember the pastor who said, I only prepare half of the sermon so that I give space to the Holy Spirit also to get across? And the little girl said, so how come I always like your part better than the Holy Spirit's part? So the Holy Spirit can use his knowledge of Greek poets to reach the audience that would not be reached otherwise. Nancy? I really enjoyed hearing about this. I admire Paul so much, but I'm always a little puzzled why later, maybe you can help me with this. Why did he say later, I'm not going to do it that way again. From now on, I'll preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. And yet what we're saying here, he really was doing that for this culture and this time. So in some ways, I disagree with Paul. Like perhaps he really did do the right thing and he didn't realize it. What do you think? So what is he saying in Corinth? The first thing is that he goes on to Corinth and he reflects on his experience. You cannot improve on what you do unless you reflect on it. One of the things that I always tell the future pastors at the conclusion of their master's degree, saying most of you will never go on to another future further studies. You don't need a doctoral degree to be a local church pastor. But the question is, is the end of your master's degree the end of your training? From now on, you won't have thoughtful professors telling you which books to read. You are not going to sit at the feet of someone who feeds you or tells you, let's reflect on this. You are on your own. And unless you learn to reflect on what's going on and read the cutting edge of the current scholarship, which let's face it, most pastors don't read a book a year. In any other profession, if you had this level of continuing education, you would lose your license. But somehow we have not figured out how to do it for pastors. If you do not reflect on what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and the lives of people around you, if you don't keep reading, that's the end of your education. And because you are too young, and if Jesus doesn't come soon, the ministry is not going to be successful. God is not going to be able to use you to the best of your potential. And notice, Paul is able to reflect on Athens. Now, of course, the question is, what is it that he says in 1 Corinthians 2? And does Ellen White agree with his evaluation that it was a complete 
flop and that he's never again going to use this method. Did he preach Christ and Christ crucified and resurrected in Athens? He did. It's obvious. Is he too strict on himself? Yeah. Why didn't he see that? I'm not sure that uh, he didn't see that. He just says, reflects and says, and now I am going to continue with this trend. I am going to find a form how to preach Christ crucified in Athens, in Corinth, and in Jerusalem. I cannot use a canned, prepared, pre-canned, prepared form of a sermon, one sermon for everybody. Because if you don't connect with your audience, you are not going to help them. Livius. Yeah, I think this is an excellent story that shows how the Holy Spirit and how God is working in every religion and how Paul simply built on what they were working with and he preached Christ and him crucified. Now, listening to the story, it brings to mind of how God is working, how the Holy Spirit is working in every religion and how he took the time and connected with the people, was connected to God to reveal to him how he might use that to lift up Christ. And it's just, he planted the cross basically on everything that they knew and everything that they were aware of. And it's just so cool how he does that. Thank you, John Pauline. Welcome. Good to have you. Just got in from my own church services over here in Beaumont. But I just want to mention that, yes, we often hear the idea that Paul said, contextualized preaching doesn't do any good. Just going to preach Jesus and leave it at that. But I think we have to read that statement in the light of chapter 9. And in chapter 9, Paul is very clear. To the Jews, I come like a Jew. To those outside the law, I come as one outside the law. I become all things to all people in order that by all means I might save some. So he articulates in Corinthians more clearly than anywhere else his missionary strategy. And if we read chapter 2 in contradiction to chapter 9, then we're not understanding him, I think. Excellent. We need to allow chapter 9 to explain chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Otherwise, you are reading into the text something he did not say. Good. Thank you. That's very important. Bob, and let's conclude after it. Did Paul later make an effort when he was talking before he went to Rome? I think it was with King Agrippa. Did he use some of the strategy a little bit there? He certainly almost persuaded him, if, if we think back on that. Yes, he says, you almost persuaded me to become a Christian. Thank you. So here's the important thing. Paul is willing to think and speak in such a way so that he connects with his audience. And for different audience, he uses different approach. But he's willing to do whatever it takes. And if it takes quoting pagan Greek poets, that's what he's going to do. And back to what Rita said, Paul, the same as the early church, understood, if you want your preaching to be effective, you need to understand the world you are trying to reach. If you want to succeed in addressing and fulfilling the mission that God gave you, you need to not only understand God's mission, but you need to understand the world that you are trying to reach. If you have no understanding of culture, if you have no understanding how your people are thinking, how are you going to address them? And so it takes more than just using the categories, the words that they are using. It takes understanding how people are thinking, why they come to the conclusion. I'm sad to say that most people, or for so many people, they did not have education who would teach them how to get this. They only had brainwashing that tells them what is the right answer. But the answer is useless if you don't understand the question. And that's why the education is equipping people with skills so that as the answers change with change of time, you can come up with new answers with the help under the work of the Holy Spirit that addresses new times, just as Paul does not use the approach of Joshua, Gideon, or Elijah, but because he's sensitive, the Holy Spirit can use him and bless his previous learning in a way that he reaches some that can be reached and wouldn't be reached otherwise. Now, if you look at number 10, God, even today, longs to be introduced in such a way that people will understand and appreciate him. God longs for people to connect with him. And you and I either enable that, or a hindrance for that. But if we are willing to connect with people in a new and fresh way, then we are part of the process of what the Holy Spirit is doing today around the globe. We often speak a lot about God's work in us, sanctification, God's work through us, mission, but we are 
often completely blind to God's work around us, how the Holy Spirit is already at work on the hearts of people, and that even philosophers, Greek pagan philosophers, can come up with certain concepts which are true and good. And you and I can continue in that work under the influence of the Holy Spirit and bring the things that people either don't see or they don't appreciate because in Jesus, he is the answer to all promises and he's the answer to the questions that people are searching and looking for. The word of God is still capable of reaching each person in this world in a new and meaningful way. If you preach Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, you are not going to get 3,000 people baptized. If you preach Paul's sermon in Athens today, you are not going to get the leader of Dionysus on the synagogue or the group converted. But if we are open to how God works today, and we realize that God's word has not finished with Gideon, Elijah, Paul, or Ellen White, then the best days of Adventism and God's mission are still ahead of us. Because God is going to use people like Ashley, and Neil, and Bob, and Livius, and Lou, and Sandy, and Michael, and Henry, and you and me, to do things that we don't think it's possible to pass on a new understanding of who God is as an answer to the needs of people. And that's the job that you and I can participate in, because God has not given up on anyone. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we are thankful for the opportunity to reflect on how Paul is able to step out of the form that he has learned in his childhood and has read about in his Hebrew Bible, and to be used by you in a new situation, in a new and compelling way, to bring a new perspective on who you are and how you work with people who are seeking and searching for you in a way that brings you in a positive light and allows people to see that you provide answers that they cannot find elsewhere. We pray for ourselves and our generation, not only as individuals, but as a corporate church, so that we could do it in our times, in our places, in our cultures, wherever we are around the globe, and not to feel threatened that the work of your spirit is not uniform and can take different forms in different places and different times. And thank you that we can play a small part in your story and be part of your mission. We are eternally thankful for that. In Jesus' name, amen.